AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And here on this Tuesday, we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. That's Patrick Kulikan, as we are going to be chatting about some of the stories that they have been working on over at the Reformer. And today, we are going to be talking a little bit more about this wage theft case in central Minnesota, since Patrick wrote a column about, well, why we need to be paying a little bit more attention to this and why we do largely have two sets of justice systems here in the United States. We will also be talking about Pete Stauber, no surprise here, taking credit for a bill that he voted against. And then finally, we'll cap off the interview talking about how whiter, richer high schools in the Twin Cities area end up sending more students to college than other schools in the state. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about your column titled, Wage Theft Case is a Test of Whether We Have Two Justice Systems in America. And this has to do with, well, over the past three years, these two dairy farmers, Keith Schaefer and his daughter, Megan Hill, who are alleged to have stolen at least $3 million from hundreds of their workers at 18 facilities across central Minnesota. That's according to a lawsuit from Attorney General Keith Ellison, where he alleges they shaved about 12 to 32 hours off workers' paychecks every two weeks, then also refused to pay workers for their first and last weeks of work, and unlawfully deducted rent from their wages for beds in barns, garages, and other structures that really were not suitable for human habitation. In fact, you can see some of the photos of these over at minnesotareformer.com. Ellison says it's the largest wage theft case in his office his office's history at $3 million. But as you write about, uh, we still haven't exactly been seeing the type of investigation you might expect out of a movie where we have agents swarming these facilities looking for evidence. That largely hasn't happened yet. And as you write, this this case largely shows that we do have two systems of justice here in the United States. So why exactly do you think we have these two sets of judicial systems, one for, well, largely the wealthy and then one for workers? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I was struck by, um, I mean, the, the facts that are alleged by the Attorney General uh, in here are um, so repugnant um, and so striking, uh, and and yet the the case, and and the numbers involved are really significant, three million dollars at least. Um, and we, I don't think we know the full extent of it because the company was um, against uh, was uh, apparently alleged to have destroyed its uh, time cards and other records. Uh, which uh, you would need to collect evidence, uh, and yet the the story didn't even make the front page of the Star Tribune. And you know, I think there's we see this time and again, where uh, whether it's the Sacklers and uh, the billions that they made um, from the over prescribing of opioids, or uh, you know, the the kind of behavior that uh, we saw on Wall Street and in the mortgage firms leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, this kind of behavior, um, people get away with fines, or uh, they just flat out get away with it. And, um, you know, it is, I, I sort of rack my brain about why, why do we treat these two classes of um, really antisocial behavior uh, so differently? Um, because we certainly, if, it, if it's a, a fentanyl addict, uh, who's also dealing to feed his addiction. I mean, and he has got a fair amount on him. He's probably going to go to jail, uh, maybe even prison. Um, if, if you steal something that's worth a thousand dollars or more, that's considered a felony. Um, and yet in this case, 
Um, and I should um, I should offer this caveat that for all we know, there is this rigorous criminal investigation that's going on right now. We just don't know about it. But uh, as you said, there was no scene of agents swarming through and scouring for for evidence. We're not aware of anything like that. Um, so you feel um, you feel a, a, a catalytic converter, and we're going to put you in jail. Um, but you feel um, this is again just an allegation from the attorney general of the state of Minnesota: three million dollars in wages. Uh, then. Um, you only have to face at this point uh, apparently civil penalties, um, and and I think there is just something deep in the American consciousness uh, that uh, I can't really explain it uh, other than that um, it's it's uh, it's just a class issue. Uh, we're talking about uh, wealthy people who are uh, who are committing uh, certain kinds of crimes and poor people who are committing the other kind of crime. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, uh, one kind uh, uh, receives the uh, very steep penalties and consequences, and the other uh, doesn't at all. And um, and so I think it's it's something that we need to to think about and ponder uh, a lot more than we do. Well, you're right a little bit too, kind of comparing the situation to what we saw with Gordon Gecko, of course, back in the Wall Street movie in the '80s as well. And I think part of it too is that we just you portray the portray these types of guys who go out and steal money and take advantage of others as capitalist heroes almost for kind of a lack of a better way of putting it where you kind of make them look appealing and you say well you're that much closer to being in that position too and i think that kind of plays into the psyche too where you just convince people well you could be that person so you don't want all these protections for workers because you could be that guy I don't know. I think there's something in that too, because as you said, we, we we should be making a bigger deal out of this, but we're not largely. Yeah, and I mean that, and people have talked about that. For, uh, the reason why we don't have uh, the kind of um, class politics or class warfare that we see in in, uh, in some other countries, especially in Europe, is because Americans sort of see themselves as one day reaching that apex. And, um, and they, you know, the billionaire is just like me. Um, and of course it's, uh, it's fantastical. It's ridiculous. Um, and the reality is, uh, we do have a class war in this country. It's just that, uh, the rich are winning. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Uh, one more thing that struck my eye as I was reading through the article, and that's the fact that we do, of course, have one of the toughest laws in Minnesota when it comes to wage theft. But unfortunately, our wage theft law hasn't exactly been used that often. Since 2019, Minnesota has had, of course, one of the strongest anti-wage theft laws in the country, but the law has virtually unenforced, or has virtually been unenforced, I should say, as it's only been brought, I believe, just five times over the past five years, and only one person has even been convicted of wage theft, which is crazy when you think about that. We're supposed to have one of the toughest laws here in the country, and we've only had one conviction in only four years. Obviously, this case here in central Minnesota could change things, but uh, yeah, that that just really speaks volumes right there. Yeah, and I think there's more work to do on this because uh, a key problem is that you've got the the, the county sheriff um, in in these uh, uh, in I think Stearns and Redwood County 
uh, who pres- uh, ostensibly would be doing an investigation, and, and then it would be a county attorney who would be prosecuting it. Um, honestly, I, I don't think that this is the. I don't think that county ter- uh, uh, county sheriffs have much experience in this kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure that they even have much interest in it. They remember that they are elected officials, and uh, and so I think that's another issue. And I, I do wonder if um, we could just give original jurisdiction. Uh, to an agency where the attorney general uh, that would have uh, would be better uh, positioned to investigate and prosecute these kinds of crimes because um, it ought to be a priority. And I'm afraid that um, if you're talking about, a, I'm sure the this local dairy farmer is a person of uh, some influence. Uh, they've got a lot of operations in central Minnesota, and, um, and so the question is: is is a, is a county sheriff? Uh, or or a county attorney going to take them on, um, like it appears needs to happen in this case. Uh, so I, I think they, they need to keep working on that law um, because uh, wage theft is real. We know it's real in, in, uh, in agriculture and construction and, and some other industries, especially where you have immigrant labor, um, who uh, people who fear that if, if they complain, um, then, then the boss, will uh, get them deported or, or what have you. Um, so it's a huge power imbalance between uh, employers and, and, and workers, and, uh, and, and we need to bring some equilibrium to it um, by using law enforcement resources to, to really stamp out this wage theft. Well, I think you just brought up the other key point, too. You can strengthen the law as much as you want over at the state legislature, but if you don't have a local county attorney or a local county sheriff that's going to enforce the law, well, then you have all sorts of problems, too. So that just adds a another layer to what's happening with this situation where, yeah, even if Keith Ellison and others want to prosecute this case, if the local guys don't, well, we're kind of in a bind. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on now. Again, you can read more about Patrick's column over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. I want to talk a little bit more about a federal issue right now, and that's, of course, the infrastructure bill that passed a couple of years ago that you might remember pretty much all Democrats voted for and all Republicans voted against. Now, the reason why we're bringing that up is that the federal government is set to send to send $1 billion to help rebuild the Blatnick Bridge between Duluth and Superior, Wisconsin. Pete Stauber, representative from the 8th District in Minnesota, of course wants to take credit for this bill, even though he voted against the infrastructure bill. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how he's able to continue getting away with these types of things, because Stauber has voted against a number of bills that he's tried to take credit with over the years, but largely hasn't exactly been called out or really faced any tough consequences for doing these types of things. So what are your overall thoughts on uh, Stauber trying to take credit for this bill that he voted against with infrastructure? Yeah, I remember this district uh, in northeast Minnesota is represented by um, uh, Democrats, um, I mean, I think from the New Deal all the way until uh, 21, or excuse me, 2010. Um, and, and Oberstar was a kind of legendary congressman who uh a Democratic con- DFL congressman who who brought a lot of transportation money uh, dollars up to that region, and so even though the, the district has really shifted uh, Republican, I think they supported Trump in, in both sixteen and twenty by fifteen points. Uh, there's still that core, um, um, really uh, strongly supporting 
certainly these kinds of transportation projects, and uh, by all accounts, the the Blotnick Bridge needs a, a rebuild. And so I think that uh, Stauber, even though he's basically a down the line uh, Republican, he will occasionally make uh, will will vote against his party. I think trying to create at least somewhat of a distinguishing um, political persona uh, that he's not just a, a typical uh, Republican. But on this one, he votes no, and uh, he says uh, that it's going to uh, drive us uh, towards, uh, I guess what he said at the time in 2020 was, I will not be complicit in paving a destructive and irreversible path toward socialism. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> people in the district probably think we just want a bridge. Uh, you know, I mean, call it socialist if you want, but it's a, just a bridge, and we need it, and it carries a lot of uh, freight and a lot of cars and trucks, and uh, we need to be rebuilt. And he voted against it, and then he comes around, and, uh, you know, the old saying is they uh, they vote no, but they take the dough. And uh, he says it's a huge win, and he was proud to advocate for these funds. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, thousands of people, reminded him yesterday on the Internet that uh, you did not advocate for these funds. You voted against it, and you came out and called it a a destructive and irreversible path towards socialism. So the whole thing really blew up on him, Um, his post even earned a a, uh, a reader's note uh, on Twitter um, in which all of his votes against it are listed there. Uh, and uh, he had, I think that thing had been seen uh, when I wrote this last night, 2.3 million people had seen this. Um, and I'm sure it was more today. Um, and as it happens, uh, Jennifer Schultz, the former uh, uh, state legislator, uh, who ran against him two years ago, uh, ran, ran a, you know, a good solid campaign, but she announced her campaign today. So her timing was impeccable. Uh, the, the governor, uh, Tim Walls was with her as she, uh, kind of launched her campaign today. President Biden will be, uh, at the bridge on Thursday. So it's shaping up to be a pretty rough week for Pete Stauber. Well, on a technicality, I guess he said he advocated for the funding, didn't vote for it. But uh, no, I'm just kidding on that one. But <laughs> advocating funny. versus voting, I could see him trying to go with the technicality on that. But I, I, I guess as I look further at him, maybe he's fine. He's found kind of that perfect balance between, well, being a Trump supporter, but not being absolutely on the fringe end where he's always wearing the red hat and appearing with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and so forth. But he's also not quite in the Tom Emmer camp where he's looking for a position of leadership and therefore could end up angering Donald Trump, as we have seen in the past. Maybe he's kind of found that uh, perfect medium spot for at least these, this new MAGA version of the Republican Party where he's Trumpy, but not too Trumpy for uh, some of his other uh, some of his other voting base. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's still that strong union uh, presence there, um, and and you know, I, I think they're going to be supportive of these kinds of union uh, jobs that are going to build a bridge like this. And um, you know, he's voted with government workers, um, you know, a handful of times. So I think he he knows that um, it's it's not the district really to be uh, some kind of uh, ideologue. Um, but, uh, he, he, and, but, you know, leadership can be very persuasive when they, when they want to be, uh, in this case, and back in 2021, they really wanted to show 
that opposition to the the democratic agenda was unanimous and and so they're you know and he he still has even though it's a relatively safe district now he still has to run for re-election and the the party leadership in washington still controls the purse strings um and so i'm, I'm sure he was uh they leaned on him hard to vote no and as a result he voted against this uh this bridge and i think uh he's going to have trouble anytime now um you know, I mean, it's one of the biggest pieces of infrastructure in, in the district. He's going to have trouble any time he goes near that thing, uh, because everybody's always <laughs> going to remind him that he voted against it. So, you know, there's going to be a ribbon cutting. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of uh, incremental steps at this bridge, and uh, he's he's going to uh, catch some uh, some trouble every time he he goes near it. And finally, I want to move on to one more story before we wrap things up today, and that has to do with uh, what Madison McVan wrote, titled "Whiter, Richer High Schools in the Twin Cities, sen- Twin Cities Area Send More Students to College because a new study by researchers at the Institute of Metropolitan Opportunity at the University of Minnesota Law School shows that whiter, richer high schools in the Twin Cities are sending more students to college. The report compared 30 Twin Cities area high schools that send the highest percentage of students to college to the 30 schools that have the lowest four-year graduation and college enrollment rates. Top 30 high schools for college access are, no surprise, 73% white, while the bottom 30% or the bottom 30 schools are more than 80% students of color, kind of highlighting a problem that we've known about for a long time here in Minnesota. But I'm curious what jumped out at you here from this study, Patrick. At least for me, what really kind of caught my eye was the fact that among the struggling schools, 22 were charter schools compared, when we look at the top 30, only five were charter schools. Because sometimes we hear about, well, charter schools could be a solution when, well, all of a sudden we look at this report and see so many of those 30 failing schools, 22 are charter schools. So that kind of caught my eye, at least as I uh, read through some of this information. Right. Minnesota is the birthplace of the charter school uh, movement, and uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a legitimate debate that is happening around the country about the effectiveness of charter schools. But this certainly is a bad, a bad look uh, for the charter schools that are uh, that make up a, a huge percentage of the 30 uh, worst schools. Uh, and but the other uh, key point here is that um, what this research shows, and I, I think that. The, uh, it's, it serves a purpose here. It's it's going to help uh, make the case in this ongoing Cruz Guzman school desegregation lawsuit mm-hmm. that uh, segregation clearly um, has led to uh, worse outcomes um, for students who uh, wind up stuck in these uh, highly segregated schools. Um, uh, we know that. Um, uh, and the 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 Cruz Guzman case uh, received um, was sent back to uh, the lower court after the Supreme Court said um, that said that what they had to do uh, was was prove that uh, that segregation, uh, which is certainly a, uh, a serious problem in metro area schools, prove that segregation has led to worse academic outcomes uh, for for black and other uh, kids of color. And I think this uh, this study uh, does some of that work, and 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 the 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 backers of the lawsuit uh, were very confident after the Supreme Court's ruling uh, that that the, the the case would move in their direction because they knew they would be able to show that segregated schools uh, provide worse outcomes 
uh, for black students. And I think this, uh, this certainly shows that here. Um, and, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how they continue to pile up evidence of uh, the effects of segregated schools. It's hard to believe that um, 60, 70 years after Brown v. Brown v. Board of Education, 70 years, I guess, uh, we're still having to have this debate, but here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And even if we looked at a few of the top 30 schools among them, were Central High School in St. Paul, Washburn High School, and then also Southwest High School in Minneapolis. So there are some in the in the inner city areas that are having a lot of success. And as the as Madison writes about, those schools are more racially and economically diverse than than some of the other similarly performing high scores. So performing high schools. High performing schools. Easy, easy for me to say. I think at this point I better wrap things up. But uh, anyways, that is a good point, though, of talking about how this could have an impact on that Cruz Guzman lawsuit as well. I didn't even think of that aspect. But yeah, it certainly is more evidence in their case to show that segregation is uh, not helping with student outcomes here in Minnesota. Well, you have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. minnesotareformer.com. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.